Good morning again. Hey, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, as you're turning there, let me remind you where we are and I'll set up the verse that we're gonna be in this morning. We're in a series called Led by Presence. We're in week three of that series today. We're gonna be talking about the subject of desperate for more. We're gonna see that in the life of Moses today. He's desperate uh, for more. And so as we get into chapter 33, it's important to understand what's happened leading up to this point is that Moses in chapter 32 is pleading to God on behalf of the people, and here's why. Uh, earlier on, last week we talked about Moses going up into the mountain, and there he met with God, and God gave him the Ten Commandments and uh, the prescription of building the tabernacle so that his presence can dwell among them. But as he's giving them the Ten Commandments, his people are down at the bottom of the mountain breaking them. And so uh, they think that Moses is dead because he has not come back as early as that they wanted. And so they begin to build a golden calf as, a, as an object of worship, kind of replacing Moses as the leader, uh, saying this is God's representation before us is this golden calf. Well, God is angry with his people and says, I'm gonna wipe the whole group out. And Moses begins to plead and say, God, don't do this. We're your people. We belong to you. Uh, you know, so he, he petitions on their behalf. And then God's response was, okay, um, I'm not gonna wipe them out. And then we pick up in the story in Exodus 33, but the relationship God is about to tell them is going to change. Now look what happens in Exodus 33. Look at verse one. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. That sounds like an angry parent, right? Like if I say, I'm with you any longer, I'm, something bad's about to happen, right? And this is what's going on. You are a stiff-necked people. Now, the, the, the backdrop of this is that God is, is basically, because of this event of them making this idol, he relents on destroying them, but then tells them, okay, Moses, I'm not gonna destroy you. I'm gonna send you to the promised land, the land that I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this land that's flowing with milk and honey. When that phrase is used, it's basically saying that this is fertile, life-giving land. Everything that you would ever need or want is found in this land. And then he says, tells Moses, not only am I gonna give you this land, I'm gonna clear the path. I'm gonna destroy your enemies. I'm gonna send an angel with you to fight your battles and you're going to possess the land. But here's the one condition. I'm not going with you. I'm not taking this journey. I will no longer dwell in your presence. Now, just listen to this for a moment. Listen to the offer on the table. God tells them, I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you every blessing that I have promised you is going to be yours. So all of my blessings will be yours. You're gonna have peace with your enemy. You have the land that supplies everything you will ever need. For 400 years, you've been dreaming about this promised land and you're going to get it. But the one condition is you don't get me. And the reason I wanna make sure we understand the conditions on this is because I think if we're honest with our version of American Christianity, we would probably look at this and go, that's a pretty sweet deal. 
Like we probably look at this and say, are you, are you kidding me, God? You're gonna give me everything that I've ever wanted. You're gonna give me all the blessings that I ask you for. You're gonna give me the, 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 the spouse and the family and the home and the career and all of the, the monetary blessings. I'm not gonna have any enemies. You're actually gonna destroy my enemies. And then for crying out loud, you're even gonna give me my own personal angel just in case. Like if we, we get that deal, most of us are going, if we're honest, where do I sign on the dotted line? Now, I know some of you are more pious than, than that. You're, you're, you're probably thinking to yourself, I know people who would do that, but I would never do that. How many of you were thinking that? Don't, don't answer that question. But isn't this how we function? Isn't this kind of how we deal with God? I think for, for many of us, if we we're honest, we would see uh, two scenarios play out in our life. There's scenarios of crisis, and when crisis hits, what do we do? We call on the Lord. We pursue him. We start going to church. We start reading our Bible. We start praying more. And we're going to even worship. We try to do all the things that we feel like God wants us to do. Why? Because in the moment of crisis, what we need is God to come through. We need his blessing. We need his provision. We need his solution. We need him to come through for us. And so we pursue him. But inevitably, if you're in that season, when God does come through, typically what happens in our life is, is that when we get what we want, we no longer pursue him. Or, second scenario, crisis comes, failure happens, there's a moment that you need God to come through, so you pursue and you pray and you go and you worship and you read and you do all the things hoping God would bless you and come through for you. You can order your life right, like repent of things you used to do. You're not gonna do those anymore. But if God doesn't come through for you like you want him to, typically what we do is we get angry at God and we go back to living the way that we did before. Why? Because it didn't work. And in both of those scenarios, what we are in essence saying is, is that in the crisis, it's not God that we're pursuing, it's the stuff of God. That we're pursuing him, not for the sake of getting him, but from getting from him the things that we think that we need that will make us whole and happy. And if he gives us those things, we don't need him until the next crisis. Or if he doesn't give those things to us, we're angry at him because he didn't give us what we wanted. When all along, what we're showing through this cycle of life, and if I'm honest, listen, just confession, that's been me on more than one occasion. Anybody here? And what we're declaring in that moment is, it's basically, give me the land. I don't need you. If you just give me the land, I'm good. And most, if we're honest, would probably say, look, you mean to tell me I could get all of the blessings of God but not actually have to pursue him? I'm in. But not Moses and not the people. I'm not gonna read it, but in verse four, it says that the people said this was disastrous. Like they, they, they didn't want the land without him. They, they said they were heartbroken. They began to repent and, and show signs of remorse over what they had done because they didn't think this was a good deal. And then Moses then goes to what's called the tent of meetings and he's gonna have a little conversation with God. And we're gonna see that Moses is with the people. We don't want the land if we don't have you. Listen to what Moses says here in Exodus 33, verse 13. He says, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. When he says, show me your ways, he's saying, show me yourself. I wanna know you. And he says this, he says, consider too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, verse 15. And he said, if your presence will not go with me, 
Do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not when you're going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, I don't want the land if we don't have you. How many of y'all have ever watched the show Deal or No Deal? Anybody watch that show? You know how there's the deal on the table and they gotta decide, deal or no deal, and they either take the deal. Moses slams this thing down and says, no deal. No deal. And here is what he is saying to God in this moment. Check this out. God, we would rather be in the wilderness with you than possess the promised land without you. We would rather be in the barren desert with, with you than to be in the land of blessing flowing with milk and honey than to be there without you. Why? Because Moses recognized two fundamental truths that if we would ever come to discover in our own life and in our church, it would revolutionize how we approach God and our relationship with him. Here's truth number one. Moses recognized, write this down if you're taking notes, by the way. Moses recognized that without God's presence, we have nothing. Without God's presence, we have nothing, like nothing. And this is where Moses is. He understands that to have everything but not have God is to actually have nothing, but to have nothing with God is to have everything you ever need. And he came to this realization because he's tasted of God's goodness. You see, Moses and the people have seen God deliver them. He's seen the, they've seen the power of his might. They, they've, they've experienced the blessing of the cloud by day that led them to this mountain and the fire by night that guided them. They, they saw his glory descend on the mountain. They've seen the beauty of God's glory. And therefore they said, we don't wanna live without it. In fact, it terrified them, just the thought of God's presence not being with them. And they could care less about the blessings of God if God didn't come with it. And just think about this. He says, I'm gonna give you peace with your enemy. I'm gonna wipe out every foe that you have. And here's what Moses recognized. There is no lasting peace without the presence of God. You realize this morning that peace is not the absence of strife. Peace is not the absence. Some of us think if, we, if this relationship could be reconciled or if this friendship could, could be fixed or if my marriage could be whole or some, some of you might even be thinking even worse than that. If God could just destroy my enemy, or my spouse, or this situation, right? Then my life would be great because if I had no strife in my life, I would have peace. But the problem is, peace is not the absence of strife. It's the presence of God in us. Because by the way, you can have peace with all the people around you, but you'll never have peace inside of you. Do you know the, 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 greatest, the greatest war zone on the planet, by the way, the greatest battles that are being fought every day, even in this moment. Some of you are thinking Middle East, right? That's, that's where all the major showdowns are happening. No, the greatest war zone on the planet is in your mind and in your heart. And so it doesn't matter how much peace is in your life outside of you and how much blessing you even have. Listen, nothing can satisfy the lack of peace in your heart except for the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is why we can have like perfect shalom, be on the best family vacation ever or maybe even the, a, a vacation with just you and a friend and you're in paradise and yet there'll be turmoil in your soul. Why? Because peace isn't a place, it's a person. He tells 
Moses, I'm gonna give you the land. I'm gonna give you wealth. This land, when it's just flowing with milk and honey, it's, it's endless resources. The reason, by the way, this strip of land that he's promising him, them has been the center of most of the battles since like, creation, this land has been fought over. Why? Because of its natural resources and its endless supply of wealth. And he's saying to Moses, you're gonna get all the wealth. And Moses recognizes that have the wealth doesn't change the heart. Do you realize today, it doesn't matter how much you consume in this life, eventually what you consume will consume you without the presence of God in your life. Why? Because wealth, if you don't have a heart that's transformed and being made into the likeness and the image of Christ, what'll happen is that wealth that you think would bring satisfaction is only gonna bring greater greed in your life and eventually it'll burn your life down without God's presence. And all you've got to do is turn on the television and see story after story after story every single day of people who have everything and find out they have nothing. Peace with your enemy in a place of wealth, that means great comfort and ease, which is what most of us want in life. When you think about what people really want in life, they just want to be comfortable. Life of ease. This is why we drive nicer cars and build bigger houses and go on more extravagant vacations. Why? Because we think that what's missing in our life is comfort. And God, in essence, is saying to Moses, I'm gonna give you the comfort of the land. And Moses goes, listen, the creation can never be a substitute for the creator. So to have the land but not have God is to have nothing. It doesn't matter how comfortable we have in this life and how easy our life is. If the presence of God is not dwelling in our midst, listen, there's no amount of creature comforts that can ever give you what the creator wants to give you. Is it wrong to want peace in relationships? Is it wrong to have wealth? Is it wrong to have comfort? It's not wrong for any of those. It's they just make terrible gods for your life. And it can never be a substitute of what you can only find. And this is why Moses says, the land means nothing without you. To have peace and prosperity and comfort without having you, we have nothing. And I wanna challenge you to do something. I, I think we don't have to look far to find this. You can, you can scroll through, scroll through um, your social media pages and, and look up some celebrities and kind of watch the track record of their life. Read some of the stories written about some of the most successful people on the planet. If you don't have social media, go buy one of those little magazines at every checkout counter. Now, what do they do? They put the most beautiful people on there. And then there's always some scoop about a story about how they went from uh, the mountain to the valley and their life fell apart. And it's just, if we look at just the, social, just the, the world around us and just study what's happening in culture, what is culture? It's story after story after story of people reaching the pinnacle of what they believe is gonna bring satisfaction only to find greater depression, greater sorrow, more brokenness, relationships that can't be maintained. Why? Because nothing this world has to offer can satisfy the longing of the human heart apart from Jesus and the filling of his spirit inside of us. And yet, let's, let's be honest, isn't this what we build our life around? You know, what do we do as a culture? We, we see the person, we're like, man, they have it all. I wanna have what they have. And then when they fall from grace, what do we do? We discard them and we put somebody else up there and think maybe this time. Some of you parents, listen, we're raising the most depressed generation that's ever lived. And here's our solution. Let's just give them more land. Let's just give them more blessing. 
If we can just get them more stuff and get them better education, get them better careers and get them bigger houses and give them better opportunities, then maybe we'll see this generation happy and satisfied only to find out that no matter how much land you give them, if you and your family are not putting them in the posture where they experience the presence of God in their life and are transformed, it doesn't matter what education you give them. Your families, listen, I hate to break the news to you. When you get into the neighborhood that you're working endless hours to be able to afford without the presence of God in your home, your family will be as, just as empty there as you are where you are. Why? Without the presence of God, we have nothing. Here's the second truth that Moses wants to highlight. And this one's gonna take a little bit more work and I think it's very significant. Without the presence of God, we are nothing. Without the presence of God, we have nothing. Without the presence of God, we are nothing. Look what happens in verse 13. Uh, Moses says, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. Now in your Bibles, if you have them open, I want you to circle the word people there. We're gonna come back to that. That word is significant, your people. Now look what happens in verse 14. He says, and he said, my presence will go with you. And again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight some grammar here so we can follow what's happening in the passage. I will grow with, go with you, that's singular. And, and I will give you, this is singular rest. So he's talking to Moses. Now, listen to the next verse, 15. He, he said to him, this is Moses' response to God's offer. If your presence will not go with me. Now, one thing to note here, and I'll show you at another translation in the original Hebrew, this is not singular, it's plural. Many translations will translate this, will not go with us. And I think that's the original language. Will not go with us. I'll go with you. He says, well, your presence will not go with us. Do not send us up from here. So there's this idea of connection here. If it doesn't go with us, then do not send us up from here. Here, let me show you why this is important. NLT, it's not a translation I use a lot, but it does capture the essence of the grammar. Let me read it to you out of the NLT. This is what it says. It says, the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give who rest? Everybody say you. You rest. Everything will be fine for who? For you. All right, Moses, you got a deal. I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. Everything will be well with you. But listen to Moses' response. Now, by the way, if God says that to us, I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you all. But I'll go with you. Most of us are like, to heck with them. That's a good deal, right? Moses saw the bigger picture. Listen to this. Moses said this in verse 16. He says, no deal. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with who? With us. So that we are distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Now just listen to the dialogue. All right, Moses, you got a deal. I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. Moses picks up on it and says, no, 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 no. If you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. And then he tells him why. Moses is recognizing his identity is rooted in the covenant community and the greater mission that God has given them as his people. 
Moses is, is saying, God, you can't send us to the land. You can't send us there without you. It's not enough for you to go with me. You've got to go with us because Moses recognized it wasn't about him and God. It was about them and God. He was a part of a greater mission, a greater work, and had a greater identity. See, in American Christianity, we pride ourselves on individualism, me and Jesus, my walk with Christ. I'm good spiritually. And we fail to recognize that God, while we do have a personal relationship with him, our relationship with God has a deeper connection than just me and Jesus. It's me and the people of God that have been redeemed. And what Moses is saying is like, if you send us up here, we lose our significance. We are nothing because you have set us apart so that we would be your people who dwell in your presence and there will be no difference between us and all the other nations if we go and you don't go with us as your people. Let me show you what I mean by this. I told you to circle the word people in verse 13 when he talks about this, that he'll be there, there. He says, tell this to the people, the people of God. So this word people, the reason that's significant is because the only other place that you see this word in verse 13 used to describe God's people as his people is back in Exodus chapter 19, where God gives them their missional identity. So don't turn there, look at it on the screen. You can turn there if you want. Back in 19, Exodus 19, verse five. Now listen to this. Now therefore, this is God telling Moses what to tell the people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, this is y'all, shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And it's the same word, and, and it's the only place that word is used is 33 and 19. Why? Because what Moses is doing here, he's reminding God of his mission. You see, here was God's plan all along for Israel. He's saying, I'm gonna set you apart to be my people. You're gonna be a holy nation, a nation set apart for me. I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. I'm gonna dwell among you as my people. I have chosen you out of all of the other nations and I'm gonna use you as a royal priesthood. And what does he mean by that? You are going to be representatives of God's kingdom on earth. And so as you live your life and you walk in obedience to me as your God, I am your king and you live and my presence dwells among you, I'm gonna bless you so that when the other nations see the blessing of God on your life, they ask the question, what kind of people is this and who is their God that blesses them in this way? And their testimony would be, the God that dwells among them is the true and living God. They were to be a testimony to the nation that God was the true God and that salvation is only found in him. And what Moses is recognizing is, is that if that is who we are and that is our purpose, if you don't go with us, we are nothing without you. We lose our identity. Now church, here's something I want you to see. If you go to the New Testament, the apostle Peter writes to the church in crisis. Church is being scattered, they're being persecuted, and he writes to them and he reminds them of their missional identity. This is who you are as the people of God. And notice what Peter does. First Peter chapter 
number two, verse nine. I'm gonna read this and see if this sounds familiar to you. This is who Peter says the church is. But you are a chosen race, a new race of humanity, not defined by ethnicity, but through relationship with Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Does that sound familiar? Everybody say, "Uh uh-huh. What does it sound like? It sounds like Exodus 19, the missional identity of the people of God. And here is what Peter is making the connection. He's saying, listen, church, you are the people of God. You are a holy nation. This missional identity is being transferred to the church of Jesus Christ. This is an identity that we have been given as the people of God. Listen, not generally to Christians, but specifically to the body of Christ, to the church of Jesus, that we are the people of God. We have now been made into a holy nation, the royal priesthood who are meant to represent God's kingdom on earth. And then he tells us why. So that you, as you display God's glory through your life, you might display the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And listen, if we are going to live out this missional identity, this demands that we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It demands God's presence in our midst. How can we display the glories of God without the spirit of God? And so the same is true for you and me that was true for Moses and the people of the Old Testament. Without God's presence, we are nothing. We lose our distinction among the peoples. What separates the church of Jesus from every other social group, every other gathering on the planet? We are his people who've been given his presence and without his presence, we're not his people, which means we are nobody. You see it? Let me illustrate like this. Uh, starting this weekend, and, and, and I talked about this last week, football's cranking up. A couple weeks, NFL stadiums will be filled on Sundays. Saturdays, college stadiums will be filled and there's gonna be a massive gathering of people. It's, it's a great time of the year. But there's gonna be these gatherings and what they're gonna do is they're gonna go to these, and I'm gonna call them this, these stadiums. I'm gonna call them places of worship. And they're gonna be hundreds and thousands of people that are gonna gather in these arenas, these places of worship, and they are gonna be there and they're gonna be connected, even though of all the differences that they have from socioeconomics to uh, ethnicity, there's gonna be all of these differences, but there's gonna be one common link that brings them together. And that's the color that they wear and the name that they bear. And as they gather together, they're there for one central purpose, and that is to celebrate the one that they came to exalt who is on the field of play. And as the game goes on and as the worship experience continues, what are they gonna do? They're gonna chant and they're gonna sing and they're gonna celebrate and they're gonna cheer on and they're gonna exalt the team that they came, the one that they came to exalt. They are going to give them all of their attention and focus. And they're going to worship and exalt and make much of the name that brings them all together. So let me ask you this question. What's the difference between what they're going to do on Sundays in those arenas and what we do in here on Sundays? The same thing's going to happen. We're going to gather in a place And we're gonna say, hey, look, you know what brings us together? What brings us together is the name that connects us. It's the name that we bear. 
And beyond all the differences, we're gonna see some sameness and we're gonna come into this place and what we're gonna do, the one that we've come to celebrate, we're gonna sing about him and we're gonna celebrate him and we're gonna exalt him and we're gonna make much of him. So here's the question. If that's all that there is, then what's the difference between doing that in here and doing that in some stadium somewhere? And let me just tell you, it's the presence of God. It's the name of the one that we gather in and his presence with us. Listen, when people will go to concerts you know, this week and this weekend and they're gonna go to their favorite uh, singer and celebrity and they're gonna get on the stage and the lights are gonna come up and that singer is gonna begin to sing. And you know what people are gonna do? They're gonna worship. They're gonna have their hands raised. They're gonna cry. And they're gonna lift their voices and they're gonna make much of the artist that's on the stage. So again, if that's all there is, then how, how is this any different than that? It's the presence of God. So let me ask you this. What's the difference between what's happening in this room this morning and every other false religion on the planet that has their place of worship? What's the difference? You know what they're gonna do? They're gonna come into a room and they're gonna gather around this certain name and this certain thing that's gonna connect everyone together and they're gonna get their sacred book and they're gonna teach from the sacred book and then there's gonna be a messenger that talks about the, the God that they serve and the religion that they practice and they're gonna sing songs and they're gonna pray prayers and they're gonna have chants. They're gonna do these things together and they're going to worship. What's the difference between all the false religions and what we do? See, what makes us distinct is that Jesus is our king and his presence has filled us and every other gathering is just another location of people to come rallying around something that's dead and something that's lifeless and we have come into this place and we have a relationship with the God that conquered death, hell, and the grave whose spirit lives inside of us. So when we come in here, it's not dead. Listen, it is life and it's life-giving because Jesus is alive and his presence makes all the difference in the world. We are nothing apart from his presence, but with his presence, we find identity and purpose and life. Now, the natural, the natural response to this, if we come to the conclusion, here's the two truths, we have nothing without him. We are nothing without him. Listen, if those two truths land on us, do you think it would create a sense of desperation for him in our life? You know, the reason there's not a desperation in us that wants to pursue him more and more and more is because we don't, if we're honest, we don't see that without him we have nothing and without him we are nothing. But Moses understood this and therefore it created a desperation for more of God. And I want to show you what I mean by this. I want you to see what happens next in the story. Verse 17 says this, and the Lord said to Moses, so he's hear, hearing this, this plea, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. So I'm in for you have found favor in my sight and I know, you're, know you by name. Now, most of us at this moment, if God gives us what we want, what are we going to do? Great. That's awesome. I'll go tell the people. But Moses doesn't do this. Moses, in this moment of desperation, he's crying out to the Lord, we're nothing without you. We, we have nothing without you. And so when God says, okay, you're gonna get me, and here's what Moses then replies to God. If that's true, if you're going with us, show me your glory. What is Moses doing here in this moment? If you're really going because we need you to go, 
If you're really gonna give us what we need, which is you, if you're really gonna help us discover who we are, which is our identity found in you, then God, we gotta know you more deeply. We gotta know you more fully. When Moses is asking for seeing the glory of God, glory means weight and value. And Moses is saying, I want to know in fullness your weight. I wanna know fullness of your value and your worth to us. I wanna know you in your entirety. He is desperate for more. Now, why is this important that we lean into this? I want you to think about this for a second. Think about who is asking God to show him more. It's Moses for crying out loud. Like, just think about the life of Moses up until this point. He's a shepherd in a field and God's presence shows up in a fire and verbally begins to talk to him. God says, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. So this is a guy that was in such proximity to the presence of God that he had to take his shoes off because the ground was too sacred. He's the same God that when he walks into the most powerful um, um, uh, empire on the planet, which was the Egyptian empire, he saw miracle after miracle after miracle, God's power displayed. He saw the cloud by day and the fire by night. Moses just left a mountain with God where thunder and lightning and, and roars took place so much that the people thought God had killed him. The imagery we get on the mountain when Moses met with God, the other place in the scriptures you see imagery like that is in Revelation when it gives us a glimpse into heaven. Yet despite all of the glory of God that he saw, Moses said, there's more. And Moses is saying to God, if there's more of you, I want it. If there's something about you that I don't fully know, I wanna know it. If there's any part of you that I've not seen, then I wanna see it. Why? Because Moses understood the infinite nature of God, that he knew God is inexhaustible. And as long as there is more of God to know, which there always is, I want to know it. So here's the heart question for you this morning. If this is how Moses felt about God in desperation for him, how come we're so satisfied? How can we be content with a Bible study a couple of times a week and maybe spending a few minutes in prayer, going to church occasionally? How could we ever be satisfied with what we have experienced of God? How could we ever come to a place and go, you know what, I'm good. I don't need more prayer. I don't need more church. I don't need more Bible study. Man, I am good. See, the reason I believe Moses was desperate for more of God is because Moses experienced more of God. You see, it's like this. I think it's, you ever, you ever had a meal so good that when you, you were hungry and you ate it, and even though it satisfied you, it tasted so good, you wanted to eat more? Moses understood that. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and when you taste his goodness, you want more of his goodness. And so here's what God does. God tells Moses, okay, I'm gonna show you something about me and you're gonna experience me. I love this. Look what happens here. Moses says, show me your glory. Now I want you to see this, verse 19. And he said, God replied to him, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. Now, don't miss what just happened here because what happened is strange in a way. Moses asked for what? Everybody say glory. Moses asked for glory and God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. Now, I read that earlier this week, and I'm just like, okay, I don't quite make the connection here. He asked for glory. Why didn't you just say, yeah, I'll let my glory pass before you? But he asked for glory, and God says, I'll give you my goodness. And then it hit me. God is using goodness synonymously with glory. 
Why? Because glory is the full weight of God, the full value of God, the essence of God. And so what God is saying to Moses in this moment is, you wanna see my glory? Okay, I'll show you my goodness. Why? Because fundamentally, you wanna know who I am? You wanna know me more fully? There's one word that can describe me, and that is, I am good. This is what best summarizes the nature and character of God. Just think about the attributes of God for a moment. You know that God is merciful? Anybody thankful for God's mercy? And why is he merciful? Because he's good. Why is God gracious? Because he's good. Why is he loving? Because he's I could go on and on and on about the attributes of God, the nature of God, and God is all of those things. You know why? Because he is good. And he says to Moses, I'm gonna pass before you. My goodness is gonna be seen. And then he says, I'm gonna proclaim my name to you. Now, why is that significant? The name in this particular day and time represented the nature of the person who possessed the name. So God is showing Moses here, I'm gonna let my goodness, my glory pass in front of you. And then I'm gonna proclaim to you and show you more fully who I am by proclaiming my name to you. And it's significant. Now, here's what happens in the story. You ready for it? So God says to Moses, okay, this is gonna happen. Now, one condition, Moses, you can't see my face. If you see the fullness of my glory, you'll die because no man can see the face of God and live. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make a gracious provision. There's a place that I've set up and there's a cave. I'm gonna put you in the cave and here's what's gonna happen. In the cave, when I show up, I'm gonna put my hand over your face. And when I pass through, I'm gonna cover your face. I'll cover your eyes from my face. And when I pass through, I'm gonna remove my hand and you're gonna see the backside of my glory. And when you see the backside of my glory, I'm gonna proclaim who I am to you by telling you my name. So what happens in chapter 34 is just this very thing. 34, verse number five. Look what he says here. He says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he shows up, he's passing by, and now he's proclaiming the name of the Lord. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Now capital L-O-R-D here, is representative of God's covenant name. That's Yahweh. In other words, he's saying, I am, I am. He's revealing his covenant name. And then he goes on to tell him who he is. He says, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfastness, steadfast love for thousands, giving iniquity and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity to the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So in this moment, God is going, you wanna know who I am, Moses? Let me tell you who I am. I am merciful and gracious. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. I am the one who justly deals with sin. That is who I am. So in this name, God is declaring his own goodness. Now, why is this so important? It's important because I think oftentimes when we ask for God's presence in our life, what we oftentimes are doing is we're asking for an emotion or feeling. What we're asking for, God, I want you to show up in my life. What we're saying is, give me goosebumps to make me feel better. And what God wants to give us is something better than a feeling. He wants to give us a person, himself. You know something that'll make your troubles go away a lot quicker than just 
goosebumps spiritually. It's when the presence of God shows up in your life and you get a glimpse of his nature in its fullness. See, there are times when emotions come when we get in his presence. There are times when we just get him. Either way, listen, he is what we are after. And so here, let me give you a summary statement. Write this down if you're taking notes. A summary statement to help you understand what God is doing here. Listen to this. Seeing the glory of God is about experiencing the presence of God in a way that gives us a glimpse of his goodness and reveals the depth of his nature. God is saying, listen, I'm gonna show you my glory, which means you're gonna experience an encounter with me that's gonna help you understand my goodness and it's gonna reveal you the, to you the depth of my nature. We need to know the nature of God, not just know it intellectually, we need to encounter it. We need to encounter the nature of God. See, I think for many of us, we hold beliefs about the nature of God. But I wanna to submit to you this morning that holding beliefs about the nature of God is nothing compared to beholding the beauty of the nature of God. You see, I can hold beliefs about the nature of God and not be changed even a little bit. Like, like Satan knows more about the nature of God than you, you or I could ever know in a lifetime. But when you behold the nature of God, when you behold the glory of God, what happens is what you knew about him intellectually is experienced and it transforms your life and it brings you to a place of worship. How do we know this? Look what happens in the life of Moses. Verse eight, his response. What happens when Moses sees the goodness of God and hears about the nature of God? Moses quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshiped. It drove him to his knees. He fell before God and he worshiped. Write this down if you're taking notes. Worship is a byproduct of both glory and grace. When you see the glory of God and you experience the grace of God, it will put you in a posture of worship. You see, when you behold the beauty of the nature of who God is, when you experience it, it transforms you, it drives you to your knees, which is why so many people can come into this place on Sunday morning and just stand and watch and observe and not encounter in the presence of God and not lift their voices and not seem to engage at all with the presence of the Lord. Why? We don't stand in awe of who he is. And what we need more than anything is not just intellectual knowledge. We need to press into his presence where his nature becomes real in our life because that is where true worship is birthed. And I think this is something we've got to see. We can't miss. Moses is experiencing in this moment an encounter with God's nature and presence that he only knows in part, that you and I get to know in full. You see, what Moses is experiencing on the mountain cannot compare with what you and I now have the privilege of experiencing now that Christ has come. You see, when he gives this declaration of who God is, I am merciful and gracious, and he goes through that list, what God is doing is he is giving a word picture of who he is, what his nature is like, and guess what? That's the embodiment of Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of what God revealed to Moses. So while Moses is seeing the glory of God and propelled him to worship, even though he did not know the fullness of it, you and I get to see the fullness of it in the person of Jesus, which should create in us an even deeper encounter of his, of his presence in our life. You say, what do you mean by this? Let me show you. 
Verse seven, there's a dilemma that we gotta work out and it's worked out in Jesus. Look what happens here. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now listen to this statement. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Everybody say amen to that. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions, sign me up. Amen to that, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty? Everybody say, oh me. I'm the forgiver of sins, but I will not clear the guilty. Now this is a dilemma, is it not? How can he both be the forgiver of sins, but not clear the guilty? Because I don't know about you, I'm guilty. How about you? So how can, if we're guilty, experience the forgiveness? How does he do this? How does he both forgive sin and not clear the guilty? And the answer is Jesus. You see, when Jesus showed up to planet Earth, Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He is God in the flesh, and he lived the perfection of God, which means Jesus was the only one that's not guilty. But in the divine wisdom of God on the cross, what Jesus did is that he assumed our guilt by taking on our sin. And so the innocent became guilty so that the guilty could become innocent. So when you see the cross, what you see is, is God makes forgiveness possible because he doesn't clear the guilty. He condemns the guilty and the one condemned, his name is Jesus. And he stood in my place and he received what I rightly deserve, the guilt and the shame of my sin laid upon him so that God could vindicate his own name as one who does not clear the guilty because he condemned the guilty in Christ so that me who is guilty might be cleared and forgiven of my sin. Is that amazing? And Moses didn't understand this. Moses couldn't wrap his mind around this. And so this is why we've got to press into the presence of God because it's not just to know this, but when you encounter his presence, when you truly press into, when the Holy Spirit invades your life and the beauty and the reality of what Christ has done for you really takes root in your life, it will lead you into a life of deeper pursuit, of more desperation for his presence and a life of worship that is unceasing. You know how I know this? If you read the book of Revelation, you see something that happens over and over and over again. We get these little glimpses of what's happening in heaven right now. And there's these images of worship that we see surface over and over and over again. And you know what's amazing about this is that when you look at Revelation, here's what you discover. That, that not only are they worshiping, but their worship is anchored specifically in the finished work of Christ. They're worshiping the lamb who was slain on behalf of humanity. And, and, and right now, as I speak, heaven is singing a song of worship and the focus of the song is the blood of Christ and the lamb that was slain on behalf. How do you know this? Because John tells us, Romans, uh, Revelation 5, verse 11, listen to this. He says, then I heard, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know that yesterday in heaven around the throne, they were singing a song. 
And the voices were lifted up and they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. And right now, as I'm preaching in heaven, they are singing a song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. And tomorrow they'll be singing the same song and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. Why? Because heaven has never gotten over the truth of the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Heaven has never gotten over but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Heaven has never gotten over the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Heaven has never gotten over a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And right now they're worshiping him. They're magnifying his sacrifice. They're making much of him. The problem is down here, we are so quick to get over the cross. And that is why our worship is non-existent. And that is why There's not a desperation in our heart, but listen to me. When you get into the presence of God, this is why we need a spirit. We cannot manufacture that type of worship. That kind of worship of Jesus only happens through the filling of the Holy Spirit and God's presence dwelling in our midst. Because we see the goodness of God. We don't just sing about the cross. We gaze into the one who died on it. And this is where my heart has been heavy, church. I'm gonna be real honest with you this morning. I have had more struggle writing this sermon than really any sermon that I've preached probably in the last year. And, um, and it's because of, of a lot of the things that I've been sharing the last year or so. And So in writing the sermon, there's, there's places I wanted to go and I, I just couldn't. I, and I, even this last page of my notes, I just kept coming back to this idea of what does that look like for us to live in this sort of posture? And, and it, it kind of hit me. I, I mean, I probably spent seven hours or so just on the last four minutes or five minutes of my sermon. because I felt something in my gut and I think all of us feel it. I think we felt it for the last few months. And it's the elephant in the room that I've not really been as, as willing to acknowledge that I think we have to acknowledge. And that is the circumstances of the last 18 months has changed us. As a culture and as a church, as the people of God, this last 18 months, something's happened. And I, I, think, I think if we're honest, I was in a meeting of the night with our deacons and I just asked the question, I mean, like something is off in, in our church. Something's off in culture. Do y'all feel that? Like just something doesn't feel right. Even in my own, like inside of me, there's just something that just doesn't feel right. And I, and I talk to people and when, when I had that conversation, they're like, yeah, that's, I, I, I don't know what that is. And I've wrestled with this. Like, like we have become, this last 18 months as we've seen all of the, 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 the political unrest, the social unrest, the virus and, and pandemic and the division that comes with all of that. There is so much anger right now in all of us. Like it's, I feel like for so many of us, there's just this thing underneath the surface 
It's just ready to erupt at any moment. And, and we even know what it's coming from. There's, there's so much bitterness and resentment that the slightest little, little phrase can just set us off. And I sense a lot of fear. Like I know in my heart, like I'm telling you, I've, I've had, if I'm honest with you, I've had days where like I'm just paralyzed because of fear and I don't even know what I'm afraid of. All of the division and all of those things, just uneven relationships that should so come so easy are not so easy right now. Do y'all feel, am I, am I crazy? Do y'all feel that? Yeah. And I'm not a prophet, but something hit me this weekend, yesterday, about 1030. I think it's because we've, we've gazed so long at brokenness. with our minds and our hearts so full of the brokenness and just mess of the world, we're drinking it up. We can't get enough of it. And I'll use this term, we have been so fixated on the badness of our world that we have forgotten the goodness of God. All we do is focus on what's broken. All we do is focus on what scares us. All we do is focus on what makes us angry. Listen, and I'll talk about this next week. You will become what you behold. In confession, I've become that. So what's the solution? We've got to stop looking at the brokenness and badness of the world, and we've got to press into the goodness of God. It is the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. Some of you, there are things in your life, you, they, they, there's been sin things that have been created in your life during this last 18 months and it is sucking the life out of you. And a word of condemnation is not gonna pry you out of the grip of that sin. But a glimpse at the beauty and the glory of Christ, you will find him more precious than anything you're holding on to. The bitterness, the anger, the fear that grips you, there's only one way that that is released, and that is by putting your eyes on the one who reigns above it. So, what's the solution of the culture? I wish I had one really great answer, but maybe we do have a really great answer. What if we took all of those fears and those anxieties that are very real? What if we took all of the bitterness and the anger that we've been harboring and that unsettledness? And what if we just got gut level honest and we gazed at the beauty of the Lord and just said, here it is. And we replace what we've been filling ourselves with, the ugliness of the world with the goodness of the one who reigns above it. Once your marriage fixed, I'm not trying to oversimplify. You and your spouse start gazing at the beauty of the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna worship for a few minutes, and here's, the, here's our posture in worship this morning. I want us to gaze 
into the goodness of God. Let's ask God to let his goodness pass before us this morning for a few moments. And when that happens, some of you, there's gonna be some breakthrough that's happening in your heart. There's gonna be some willingness to let go of these things that you've stuffed inside of you. It could be anger, bitterness, fear, sin, animosity, rage. He's big enough. And staying with your eyes fixed on those things are only gonna destroy you. Let's relinquish it today. So we're gonna worship and we're gonna sing. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. And there's some of you in this place, you need a relationship with God. And so if you need salvation this morning, just you don't know if you are even saved. This morning, you can know that. You can know that you have been forgiven of your sin. For some of you, you still feel guilty because you haven't realized that the guilt has been taken away in Christ. And maybe today you would come and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Some of you, your homes is a, is a battlefield because all of your attention has been on the brokenness. Maybe today you just grab the hand of your spouse and you come and kneel down and you may not have to say a word, just kneel down and just gaze together at the beauty of Christ. Some of you are angry and you need somebody to pray for you that God would help you forgive. Some of you need to go to a person that you're angry with and forgive them. God is good and I believe his goodness is gonna pass by in the next few moments. Let's press in. Father, I give this time to you and ask in the name of Jesus, you would do what you desire. And I ask this, believing by faith, you will. In Jesus' name.